if you would like to turn there in your Bibles. In all of Paul's epistles, he first lays the theological groundwork in all that God has done for us. Boy, that brings a whole new meaning to Father's Day when you, you realize God loves us. It's not because we're lovable. God has forgiven us our sins. Actually, those that have called upon us and have accepted His Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, He's washed away all of our sins, past, present, and future. That is, to me, an amazing Father's Day gift. And then He adopts us into His own family. None of us are worthy. He promises us eternity with Him in glory. And these are only a handful of the benefits that God lavishes upon His children. So this Father's Day, don't forget your heavenly Father. If your earthly Father has passed away, then cherish that remembrance. Those of you whose, whose fathers and mothers are still alive should tell them how much they are cherished before they pass because it leaves you with a sense of emptiness to only say it after they've passed away. Tell them how much you cherish them. Tell them how much... God cherishes them, most important of all. He starts out here in chapter 4 and verse 1 in a place that was provided for us, this chapter division by Dr. Stephen Langton, about the year 1225, plus or minus. He's the one who gave us the chapter and verse divisions. And I have often felt that either this happened the very last thing in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning before he had his first cup of coffee because verse 1 does not belong with chapter 4. Understand there were no verse and chapter divisions in the original language, in the original letter. It is not, take this down, it is not blasphemy to say the chapter division is in the wrong place here. That's not blasphemy. It wasn't invented by God. It was invented by man. I'm thankful for the help uh, to help us navigate through the Scriptures. But verse 1 obviously belongs with his previous admonitions on wives and husbands and children in the last part of chapter 3. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate or embitter your children. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Obviously, and then in verse 1, he talks about masters. You, you, you go, what were you thinking, Dr. Langton? This is not where the chapter break be belongs. But like I said, this was probably before his first cup of coffee, so we'll cut him a little bit of slack. Masters, verse 1 tells us, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know also that you have a master in heaven. That should motivate us to do what is right. Just as he addressed wives, husbands, children, fathers, and slaves, he now addressed addresses masters. In the early church, a good part of the church was made up of slaves. So in society and at home, your master may own you as a piece of chattel, a piece of property as a slave. But when you go to church, that slave may be the head of the church and thus over his master in the church setting. In fact, Pastor John Corson a number of years ago said, heaven is the great reversal where everything that is wrong is set right. We who are unholy are declared holy, and masters become slaves, and slaves become masters. It's the great reversal of all. There is, in heaven, there is justice for these things. Masters, by extension, employers, bosses, they're to provide fair and prompt and adequate compensation to their workers. And if you have people working for you, you're one of these masters, Pay people on time a fair wage. Don't begrudge them. Don't shortchange them. Don't try to 
to cheat them in some way, shape, or form. If you have people working for you, I believe you have a godly obligation to treat them fairly and justly, pay them on time. For some of you that are supervisors, it's easy to let that go to your head and forget that you have a master in heaven that you are responsible to. Be a good boss. Treat people kindly. No, I'm not saying you should let them run over you. You have to be a boss. But understand this, we are answerable to the living God. In heaven, there's great reverse. We may be poor here. We will be rich there. We may be servants here. We, he may make us a master over much when we get to heaven. Here's what I find interesting. In this world, we market attractiveness and wealth, materialism, possessions, good looks, athletic ability. We market that stuff. All you've got to do is turn on any TV commercial. That's what we market. Understand this, none of that stuff matters to God. Isn't that an, uh, an interesting reversal of things? We now accept, because it's on TV, I mean, we Googled it, it's got to be true, we market these things, attractiveness, wealth, materialism, possessions, which leaves the average person feeling left out. Well, I can't compete with that. I can't look like that person. I can't make that amount of money. God cares for none of the things that the world markets, none of them. Don't get caught up in a worldly mindset and look in the mirror and think yourself inferior in any way, shape, or form to anybody else on this planet. Do not judge yourself by the things that God cares nothing for. He doesn't care what, he doesn't care what you weigh. Isn't that an amazing revelation? He doesn't care whether you're young or old. He doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. All of the things that this world is enamored by mean nothing to God. And by the way, all of these things, the attractiveness, the wealth, the materialism, the possessions, youth, looks, athletic ability, you don't take any of those things to heaven with you. Not one. You and I cannot afford to start acting like the world. Oh, I've got to look this way. I've got to act this way. I've got to make a certain amount of money to be considered a success. I've got to have a position or a place or a title. You're a child of the of the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is nothing higher than that, dearest friends. It's not acknowledged in this world, but it will in the world to come, and our prayer should become Lord Jesus. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The world couldn't care less about your heart cares only about your outward appearance, matters of success and materialism. Concern yourself with the things that God is concerned with. Does that just make sense? Concern yourself with the things that God is concerned with, the, the inner man or woman, the spiritual being inside. Feed that, not your flesh. The church has bought into too much of the world today. Oh, it costs this much, and oh, we brag about its worth here. And oh, you know what I paid for? I paid $785 for your Father's Day gift. Like money means a thing to God. Why does it mean anything to us? Why does it mean so much to us? Why are we constantly tied to materialism? 
It is a satanic deception these last days, trying to get the dog to chase its tail instead of do any meaningful work for the kingdom of heaven. So we're caught up with all of the stuff that God doesn't care anything about at all. He doesn't care what you drive. He doesn't care how much you make. He doesn't care about the things that the world tells you are essential things. Instead, what should we be obsessed with? Verse 2 tells us, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Here's what you should devote yourself to, not the acquisition of worldly possessions. And yet that's what most Christians do. We say that we don't, but we want newer, better, bigger, badder. But we don't tell people that in church because we don't want to look materialistic. And we know that it's crass materialism. When it says devote yourselves, understand that word devote is a very, very strong term in the original language. It means to show a steadfast strength that is supernatural in origin to show a continuous and steadfast faith, to prayer in this case, being watchful and thankful. Continuously continue to do that is the thrust of the original. It's a command, not a suggestion. You, here's maybe the best translation of all, you, you personally, you, constantly, continuously continue steadfastly in prayer, in thankfulness, in watchfulness. What are you supposed to be watching for? The next truck to be released by, by uh, one of the auto manufacturers? The next big house that's shown on TV that's fancy and we've got to have that? What should we be watchful for? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Are we watching for anything else? Keep earnestly pursuing Him until He comes for us in the clouds. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 where it says the early church, these 3,000 new converts that Peter had just won to the Lord. I mean, imagine that. Peter, never been to Bible school, never been to seminary. His only qualification is he's been with Jesus for three and a half years. He preaches his first sermon with no notes, and it's a three-minute sermon. Pew sitters have been wishing pastors would get back to the three-minute sermon ever since, but they don't. I am not able to do what Peter was able to do by the unction of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost in 30 AD, but in a three-minute message to gather millions of people, 3,000 people came into the kingdom of heaven. And it says they devoted themselves to four things. You want to write these down because the four things that made the early church strong still make Christians today strong. And you must devote yourself to these four things. You can turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 if you like. And there they are participles. They kept on devoting themselves to, first of all, the apostles' teaching. That's the Word of God. Are you in the Word of God regularly? When it says the apostles' teaching, it's been codified for us here in the New Testament. But you need to be read it. God wrote it, but you have to read it. And that which God asks you to do, He will not do for you. He's already done His part. He sent His Son. He paid the prices for our sins. He gave us His Holy Spirit. 
When are we going to do our part? Why aren't we in the Word of God? Oh, we offer a thousand excuses. Well, I'm not a good reader. I have dyslexia. Read it backwards. I don't care. Stop with the excuses. Put it on audio tape, MP3, do something. Well, I can't understand the King James Version. Well, in 1611, that's how the average man talks. Pick up a modern translation. There are many good modern translations out there today, despite heretics that want to take you back to the original King James being the superior version in 1611 that was put together uh, by a couple of men with only a handful of manuscripts at their disposal. I'm surprised it's as good as it is. The modern translations are written and translated for us in light of all modern scholarship that's been discovered since 1611. So never think the King James Version is the standard. It's a good Bible, don't get me wrong. The New King James, the King James, you like it. If you're willing to read it and put it into practice, hallelujah, do it. If you prefer the, the New Living Translation, that's great. You're, the NIV, fine. The ESV, that's great. Stay away from the cult versions. You don't need the Book of Mormon. You don't need the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, magazines and stuff like that. So stick, stick with the Word of God. The Apostles' teaching, that's how you know truth from error. But if you're not in the Word of God, you're going to fall for everything that's not the Word of God. And unless you're finding out what pleases the Lord, you will probably live a life that is not pleasing to the Lord and is instead marked by escapism and worldliness and compromise. That's not the church that Jesus Christ is coming back for. It's coming back for spirit-filled, on-fire people that are not lukewarm. Stick to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. It has the definite article in the Greek, which means the gathering of the church together. And it says they not only met together collectively, these 3,000 people met in Solomon's court because it was the only place in Jerusalem that would hold 3,000 people. But it says they also met in each other's homes at night. So it's not small cell groups versus large church attendance. Both are necessary. The one provides more intimacy, accountability, and friendships, and the larger gathering teaching under the elder that God has appointed to the task that morning. Iron sharpens iron. But if we say, oh, yeah, I don't need to, I'm not into church, then what, understand what Satan is doing is chopping out one of those four legs underneath your stool, hoping that you will fall because you've ignored one of those four essentials to Christian growth. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Anytime the definite article is used there, the, when it says the breaking of bread, it's referring to communion. We celebrate it once a month in this church, first Sunday of each month, because you need to be reminded of the price that Jesus paid so that you could be saved. Otherwise, you take it for granted. Yeah, I know he died for me. Yeah, I know he came. I know he hung on a cross. I know he was flogged, had nails driven through his flesh. But you can take that for granted unless you're reminded of that price that Jesus paid regularly. That's we do it. why we do it once. Some other, other churches and denominations do it more or less frequently. Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So it's an acknowledgement. But if you're not partaking communion, that's one of those four legs of the stool that Satan will try to rob you of. You say, well, I don't feel worthy to partake of communion. <clears throat> Newsflash, you're not. 
you never have been. I don't even know why you're asking the question. That's why Jesus came, because you're not worthy. If you were worthy, if you were able to get to heaven on your own, then Jesus came for nothing. He died for nothing. He lived for nothing. Of course you're not worthy. That's why we remember Jesus. I've never had spikes driven through my hands. Have you? I've never had a spear thrust through my side like the Romans did to Jesus. Have you? I've never been crucified. Have you? Then we must never take that for granted, that which Jesus did for us. Every time we celebrate communion, it should bring a tear to your eye out of sheer gratitude for what he's done for us. Talk about a good, good father. It says, fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer. To the apostles' teaching, number one. Secondly, to the fellowship. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And fourthly, to prayer that, that Paul mentions here. Devote yourselves to prayer. But don't forget to be watching for the second coming of Christ. Be watchful. Because if you know he could come any minute, you will live appropriately. Otherwise, you will live for the flesh. You will live for this world, not the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will live for entertainment. You'll live for distraction. You'll live for, for sports. You'll live for any number of false gods that are out there. All of us watch too much TV. All of us spend way too much time indulging the flesh. Think about this. Suppose you read your Bible as much as you watched your TV. You'd be nominated for sainthood next week. But we think, oh, well, so, that's normal, isn't it? No, it's not normal. It's the picture of a compromised church in the last days. The lukewarm church that Jesus said nauseates him in Revelation chapter 3, referring to the church at Revelation in Laodicea there in Revelations. Devote yourselves We've got it mentioned twice now in Scripture for us, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, and here again in Colossians 2. Why don't we devote ourselves to prayer? The number one excuse I get is, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Do you have less time than the Lord Jesus Christ had when he walked the earth back in 30 AD? Do you have less than the same 24 hours that he had? You have the same exact amount. He had the, all the time in the world to do the perfect will of God. You do too. You have all the time in the world to do the perfect will of God. But we tend to be distracted by other things. And then we use them as excuses why we're not the spiritual men or women that we want to be. If you want to be, then be it. Read and pray and study and fellowship and worship. What's stopping you? Just you. There is nobody and no thing stopping you except you. You can be closer to Jesus Christ today than any other person on planet Earth if you choose to. It's all a matter of priority, isn't it? It's all a matter of priority. What do... what? What occupies my time? I'll tell you what, since the invention of the uh, radio and television after that and technology today and our cell phones and stuff like that, Satan has masterfully made us a slave to all of these things that mean nothing in the kingdom of heaven. 
We're a slave to them all and think that we cannot live without these things now. Devote yourselves instead to prayer, being watchful and thankful, verse 3, and pray for us too, Paul says. Oh, I think that is, that is so cool. Where the minister asks for prayer, I'm asking for yours as well. He asks that God would place before him an open door. He's been under house arrest for two years. He's been sitting in jail attached to a Roman legionnaire by chains and shackles, and he is not free to travel about. He's free to receive friends and stuff, but he's itching to go on another missionary trip. He's been on three missionary trips so far. Man, he's got a passion to share the gospel. He just wants to tell people about Jesus. The Jews have rejected him, so he has become now the apostle to the Gentiles. He says in several of his writings his desire to go to places he'd never been before. He says, man, I want to go to Spain. I want to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Spanish. I want to go back to Europe and tell the Europeans Jesus is Lord. I want to go back and encourage those churches that have been planted on the first several missionary trips. There was a zeal about the man, and that's what he's praying for. Pray that God had let me out of here. I've written my four prison epistles. Can't think of anybody else that, that I need to write to. I, I've witnessed every single prison guard here till I'm blue in the face. Time to get out of jail. Would you pray for that? Not so I can get out of jail so much as I can spread the gospel to people that have never heard it before. As far away as Spain, he, that's what he's praying for. When's the last time you prayed that God would give you an open door to share your faith? God, give me an open door to share my faith. Let somebody ask me about something of spiritual significance. Lord, open a, a door for me. You devote yourself to these things that Paul has encouraged us to devote ourselves to, and God will open that door for you. But didn't Jesus say, ask and seek and knock, and the door will be open to you? That means you've got to do some asking. You've got to do some seeking. You've got to do some knocking. And all of those are participles in that passage. You've got to keep on doing it. Keep on asking. Being thankful. I, I, persistence is an important quality that God is trying to weave into our lives. I, I've heard it said once before, well, if you repeat the same prayer more than one time, well, that's a, that's a lack of faith. You just should have to say it one time, really? Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane that that cup be taken from him. He repeated himself. I don't find that to be due to a lack of faith. Three times in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul asked the Lord, take this thorn in the flesh away from me. Whatever it was may have had something to do with his eyes because he had to have other people write his letters for him. Then he'd sign them at the very end to authenticate them. But God said in a nutshell, no. But he, three times he asked. How many times did Jesus give us parables uh, about the necessity to persevere in, in prayer? In Luke 11, there's this guy who's got some visitors come late to his house, and he's got no bread, so he goes next door, knocks on his, his neighbors. Hey, wake up, wake up. Can I borrow some bread? No, go away. We're in bed. You got the kids all gathered here. You know, I don't want to get up. And he keeps on knocking, and he keeps on knocking. And finally, it says the guy gets out of bed and gives him some bread just so he stops knocking, and he can go back to sleep. And then Jesus also gave us the parable of this judge that had no fear of man or God. And this little widow lady kept coming to him asking for justice against her adversary. <clears throat> and, he, and he had no regard for God whatsoever. 
had no regard for man. He was a tyrant of a dictator. And he didn't want to grant her justice, so she kept coming and kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. It says there that Jesus gave that parable to show us that we should persevere in prayer. Keep on praying. And just because he said if this unjust judge can be convinced by this widow lady because of her persistence, how much more can God be persuaded by the prayers of his people? It is not that God is an unjust judge. It's not a comparison. It's a contrast. It's a contrast. In other words, if you can wear down an ungodly judge by your perseverance, how much more readily will God answer the prayers of his children that are persisting in their prayers, seeking his face, glorifying is his name. I want to stay watchful. I want to stay thankful. It's so easy to be a complainer in life, isn't it? If you find yourself doing things you don't like, how many of you guys, let's talk about Father's Day for just a second. How many of you guys love mowing the lawn? You're a sick puppy. There is one hand, two hands up in this entire room. Two hands, okay? What I prayed for yesterday is, Lord, give me a love for gardening. Because every time I mow the lawn, I'm thinking, oh, I hate this. I just hate this. I got to hit the lawn. You know? And, well, Jim, who are you doing this for? I hear the Lord in the, in the back of my ear. Who are you doing this for? I'm doing it for you, Lord. Then stop complaining. <sighs> yes, Lord. Sometimes he uses my precious wife who reminds me that complaining is not of the Lord. It's of the flesh. So, guys, be praying that God would change your heart. That you would love the things that God loves. That you would be a better servant. And that you'd enjoy mowing the lawn and transplanting rose bushes and trimming lilacs and all of those things. I, I want to learn to truly enjoy that. Because it pleases my wife. Makes the yard look better. I mean, three-foot weeds in your front yard don't bless anybody. So get the lawnmower out, guys. And don't do it with complaining. It says in verse 4, Pray that I may proclaim this gospel clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. He's talking about sharing your faith. Make, if God gives you an opportunity to share your faith, don't be silent. Just, just share. Open your mouth. It's so important to pray for the minister. It's so important for the ministers to pray that God would provide opportunities for you. It was called a mystery by Paul, this gospel message of his, because it wasn't clearly seen in, in the Old Testament. But verse 4 challenges me. He says, pray that I may proclaim this gospel clearly as I should. Can you proclaim the gospel clearly? I mean, have you just thought that through in your own mind? If somebody came up to you and said, hey, I hear you're a Christian. Can, can you share your gospel with me? What's that? I don't know what even what a gospel is. Can you share it with me? What would you say? Many Christians today would go, uh, 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 uh. Uh, well, you know, uh, how about I just take you to church and the pastor will tell you, you can ask him after church service. Really? You don't know what you believe? You don't know how you were saved? 
you don't know Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody goes to the Father except through Him? Have you thought about maybe trying to memorize bits or pieces of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Tell people, I mean, you, you just don't want to come up short where people ask you to share the gospel with them. All Paul wants to do is share the gospel. I flunked a test yesterday in this regard. It was bad enough I had to trim the lilac bush, mow the lawns, and, and do the rest of that stuff. So I was hot and sweaty, and I was dizzy and had a headache and dehydrated. I mean, all of that fun stuff you do on your days off, you know. And, and, and this some door-to-door salesman uh, comes to the door. I, I just, just sat down on my lazy boy recliner, and we hear the knock on the door, and Kathy mercifully got up and answered it so I could lay there and sweat and feel sorry for myself. And, and I could hear a bit of the conversation. He's trying to sell her something we need about like a hole in the head. And he's going on, and she's saying, no, 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 thank you. Thank you, we're not interested, no, 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 thank you. We're, we're good to go. And he would not take no for an answer. So I went to the door, and I growled at him like a pit bull. You may leave our property now. God bless you. Have a good day. The next time I answer this door, it will be with a 9 millimeter pistol. I advocate you leave the premises promptly. Not quite that bad, but that's, that's what I was thinking. Fifteen minutes later, he knocks on the door again. I was convicted because I didn't handle that situation like Jesus would have handled that situation. You know what that young man needed most? Jesus. But I couldn't be inconvenienced. I was hot and sweaty and had a headache and was dehydrated, wanting to feel sorry for myself and sit down for just five minutes. Jesus never did that. When he was weary, he sat down with the woman at the well. He directed her attention from physical water to spiritual water. Wanted her, want her to believe in, in the Lamb of God. You know, he was just as weary and hot and sweaty as I was, I'm sure. But he handled it differently. While I flunked my test yesterday, I encourage you to start thinking differently when irritating door-to-door salesmen knock on your door. They need Jesus. Here's how I wished the conversation would have gone. I wished I'd have gone to the door after Kathy had answered and he wouldn't take no. I wished I'd have gone to the door and said something a little more loving, a little more charitable. Say, I appreciate that you're trying to make a living, but you're offering a product that we really don't have any need of. But I do know what mankind's greatest need is. It is of Jesus Christ the only one who can forgive us our sins. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Would you like to pray that prayer with me? Oh, I wish with all of my heart the conversation had gone like that, and it will next time. We're all weak. The the flesh is weak. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is sometimes weak. Well, what Paul is encouraging us is if you're grabbing hold of the hem of his garment, if you're staying strong, 
in, the, in reading and in prayer and in fellowship in the Lord's Supper. You know, if you're staying strong in these things, the chances are you'll answer the door better next time. So learn from Pastor Jim. Answer the door better next time. That person's greatest need is not to make a sale. Their greatest need is Jesus Christ. Tell them God loves them. If you don't get anything else out of your mouth, tell them God loves them. God loves them. They're just trying to make a living. They're just trying to put beans and weenies on the table. And I'd like you to learn from my negative example. You don't have a perfect pastor anymore than I have a perfect congregation, but I believe with all of my heart we can do this better. Do you believe that? I'll tell you what, I'll pray for you for an open door. If you pray for me, that God will keep that door open for me as well. That's all Paul is asking of the church. It is not a, a difficult task, but it is one that requires a little bit of inconvenience, uh, shall we say. Whole context here in this whole paragraph is sharing your faith. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim this gospel clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, those outside the family of faith, those outside the church, the, the pagan world that so often needs Jesus but rejects him carte blanche. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. I highlighted it in my Bible yesterday. I mean to do better next time by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Tell you what you don't want to do. Don't try to sound theological. Don't use Christianese on people that don't understand what you're talking about. Well, I was slain in this spirit. What does that mean? Is that like a felony? They don't know what you're talking about. Well, I was sanctified and I was justified. And they have no idea what those words mean. They have no idea. Don't talk like that. You don't talk to anybody else on planet Earth like that. The idea is not to sound spiritual. The idea is to meet their spiritual need, meet them where they're at, which means you're going to have to use vocabulary. They understand. They need Jesus. I don't want to make it difficult for people to come into the kingdom of God. I don't want to give them a long list of do's and don'ts. Well, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know. They don't know what the Ten Commandments are. They have a suspicion they've broken every one of them. But then we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The issue isn't how far we fall short. The issue is, can we be redeemed? And the answer is yes. It was already purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. That historical figure who walked the earth, who taught men, who did miracles, who died on the cross in payment for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. And anyone who believes that with all of their heart can be saved and delivered from this sinful, fallen world. But I don't want to use guilt trips on people. I don't want to manipulate. I don't want to impress them with theological jargon. Sometimes inconsistency in our own lives speaks louder than our words. We're, we're anxious, but tell them they can have peace. We speak of love, but don't exhibit it in our actions. The world is quick to pick up on that hypocrisy. Redeeming the time is how the old King James puts that. It's an accurate translation. In other words, buy it up. Time's in short supply these last days. Make wise use of your time. 
Wouldn't be a bad idea to carry a tract with you or a little pocket New Testament or a Bible app on your phone that you can share with people. Just have it set up for John 3.16. This is how you can be saved. That's your greatest need. Used to be a bumper sticker years ago. I wish it had come back out again. Carpe diem, Latin for seize the day. Seize the day. Make the most of the opportunity. You have today and you are not promised tomorrow. Then get it right today. Read today. Pray today. Be watchful and thankful today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Even do obnoxious door-to-door salesmen, Pastor Jim. Especially do obnoxious door-to-door salesmen. Verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here's how to share your faith. Tell people about Jesus. Tell them how you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out testimony. I was a sinner. Somebody introduced me to Jesus Christ. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I got saved. Here's what my life's been like since. It's really quite simple. You can tell your testimony easily in 90 seconds to anyone. 30 seconds about what your life was like before you met Jesus Christ, specifically how you accepted Jesus Christ. Don't tell them about church membership or baptism because those things don't save you. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So stick with that and then tell them what your life has been like since. It might be as simple as this. I was a kid in New York City at 19 years of age, just trying to make my way through life, and everywhere I turned, things were falling apart. I moved to Oklahoma City and, and started a job with a guy who started talking to me about Jesus, how Jesus died for the sins of the world, and he, more than that, he died for my sins. And he asked me one day, would you like to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And I said, <laughs> I never prayed in my life. I'm not going to start by praying with you and sounding stupid. So he said, well, go home and pray. So I went home, and I said, Lord God, I don't even know if you're real, but if you are real, and if Jesus Christ is your son, and he died on the cross to pay for my sins, then Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? Would you take up residence in my heart and forgive me all of my sins, and I'll live for you forever? And what my life has been like since has been nothing short of remarkable. I'm not perfect, but I'm so much better than I was, and I'm heaven-bound. I've got the hope of Christ in my heart. How about you? That took 60 seconds. What's your excuse? You know better than anybody else on the planet how you got saved. Share that with people. It doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take a theological background or education. You don't have to have your 40-pound Bible with you. You don't have to have 58,000 scriptures memorized. You just need to make the most of the opportunity when it presents itself and pray for those opportunities. It's so simple. Don't let Satan complicate that for you. Well, I'm not sure. I've got 20 of the 30 points of the Roman road of salvation memorized, but I'm not sure about point 20 or 32. Oh, please. Trust God, not your memory. Trust the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you and give you words when you need words to share. But you have a personal testimony unlike anybody else's in the world. Tell people how they can be saved. Just tell them what happened to you. It turns your life around. If it didn't, you wouldn't be here this morning. People need that sense of hope and meaning and purpose that their life 
has a purpose to it because they don't know what it is. They're just limping from opportunity to opportunity. If they'll take any old job, if they can get a nickel more, they don't know why they're here. They don't know what they're living for. All they know is they're not happy and they got no future and their life's falling apart. They do know that. What they need is not your sympathy. They need your Savior. And that's Jesus Christ. Share it with him. goes on to say in verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all of the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I love Paul constantly says, I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave. Doulos is the original word in the Greek, and it meant a household slave. Paul didn't take to titles and names and badges. Well, you may call me the right honorable Reverend Paul, raised by Gamaliel, a member of the Sanhedrin. He didn't care about that. He didn't want names or titles or initials after his name. He said, I'm a servant of the Lord. Verse 8, I am sending Tychicus to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and he may encourage your hearts. Boy, I'll tell you what, just highlight the word encourage because that's what most people need today. Encourage them. Tell them how much you love them, how much you appreciate them. Tell them how much God loves them and he's got a plan and a purpose for their lives. How he wants to fill them with the joy of their salvation. The joy of the Lord shall be your strength, Nehemiah told the people. Verse 9, he is coming with Onesimus, interesting character, this runaway slave whose name means useful. And as Paul would write in another prison epistle to this guy named Philemon, Philemon apparently had a runaway slave that Paul met in jail in Rome. Won him to faith in Christ Jesus, and then Paul writes a letter back to Philemon that says, please don't kill the guy because the penalty for being a runaway slave was death in the Roman Empire. So not many slaves ran away. His condition must have been so bad. But Philemon had come to faith as well. And so Paul writes him this letter on Onesimus' behalf, and he, he says, he was once useless to you, but now he's useful. A play on the word, Onesimus. He is our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. He's a brother in the Lord. Notice Paul doesn't say he's a Baptist, just like you. He doesn't say he's a Catholic, just like you, or even a Calvary Chapelite. I don't even know if that's a word. We have put up with all of these denominational differences, but understand, in the first century, you were a Christian or you weren't a Christian. There was nothing else. You were a pagan or you were a believer in Christ Jesus. Today, we've sliced that pie up, and I think we need to recapture some of that essential unity within the body of Christ. I don't want to argue denominationalism. You want to go to one church versus another? God bless you. I'm just a happy camper. You're going to church at all. I don't care where you go to church. I don't want to argue doctrine. I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. You should too. But you don't want to get into some verbal arm wrestling contest over that. Well, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay, here's the issue. Do they love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Your brother's in the Lord. Let it go. Let it go. You should know what you believe. You should know why you believe it. But you don't have to win every argument. Please, don't do that. Just love Jesus. Introduce them to Jesus if they don't know him. If they do know Jesus, then find some common ground. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is practical stuff. We are all servants of the one living God, right? 
many different congregations, that's fine. I don't care. One pastor different than another, they're all different. By the will, plan, and purpose of God. Onesimus is coming, he says in verse 9, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, another one of Paul's traveling companions, he's from Macedonia, northern Greece. He's mentioned three times in the book of Acts as being around Paul on his, on his missionary trips with him. He even accompanied Paul to Rome. That is no easy trip apparently paid for it out of his own pocket just to be with Paul and be able to minister to him. Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This is John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, the guy who, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was nabbed, they, grabbed, they tried to grab hold of him, grabbed his cloak, and he ran away naked, as well as humiliated, as you might imagine. This is John Mark that bailed on Paul on his first missionary trip, but was reconciled to Paul later on, forgiven his failings, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul has got no hard feelings about the young man's previous failures. Don't rub anybody's nose in their previous failures if they have repented of them. You have no right to do that. God doesn't do that. And unless you are greater than God, you should not remind them of a sinful and fallen past. Let it go. Just ask yourself the question. You can hold it against him if you're greater than God. If you think you're greater than God, we need to talk right after service so you can repent of that sin. But that's the tendency of our flesh, isn't it? Every argument, you always do this. You never do that. It's always, really? I mean, eternity is a long time. You mean I've never done it? You mean I've always done it for all of eternity? That's a long time. That's the kind of foolishness that comes out of our mouth. Well, don't you remember your failure? I am my own worst critic. I don't need your help. I suspect most of us are exactly like that. I have failed time without number. I know you have as well. Tell you what, strike you a bargain. I won't be your critic if you don't be mine. We've repented of our sins. Amen? Are they forgiven? Yes. Yes. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Praise God in heaven. His restoration is available to every single one of us. We've all blown it. Don't remind each other of your failures. We know them very, very well and intimately acquainted with mine, and I flog myself regularly with my failures and shortcomings. I don't want the enemy to do that very much to me. You say, well, why would you want the enemy uh, to do that at all? Because it keeps us humble. Never forget what you've been forgiven. Never forget what you've been delivered from, but don't rub anybody else's nose in their failures, in their past sins. This is all between you and God, isn't it? Yeah, for each one of us, that is absolutely true. 
He goes on and describes then a common name, Jesus, in verse 11. This is not Jesus Christ, obviously. He is at this point in time in heaven and has been there for, for several decades. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are friends and compadres that have been around Paul during his imprisonment. He's been free to receive visitors like that, and God has used them to encourage his, his precious servant, Paul. Jesus, who is called Justice, sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Comfort one another. Not condemn one another. Not belittle one another. Comfort one another. I like that. The word is parakaleo in the original language, and it means literally somebody who's got a limp. You come alongside them, you put their arm around them, and you help them to walk on a bad leg or a bad knee or a bad hip. That's the picture that's in parakaleo. The, the Holy Spirit of God is sometimes called the paraclete. comes from the same word. He is the one who helps us walk in this sinful, fallen world. We need the Holy Spirit of God every single day, comforting us, encouraging us, challenging us. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, probably the, the pastor of the church at Colossae, is one of you and a servant of Jesus Christ. He sends his greetings as well. He is always wrestling with you in prayer. I like that word picture, wrestling with you in prayer. The root of the word in the original language is he's agonizing in prayer for you guys. Agonizing? I mean, when I was young and skinny in high school, I was on the wrestling team. I, I don't, can't remember if I ever won a match, but they always left me exhausted. Because you gave it 110%. I was wrestling. I was wrestling. And oh, after a three-minute round, you're going to, I'm dying a thousand deaths here. Well, Paul says, do you pray like that? Do you wrestle in prayer for the needs of others, for the situation that is at hand? Well, Epaphras is constantly wrestling in prayer for you guys so that you may stand firm. In other words, Paul says, I don't want to see a single one of you fall away from the faith. I don't want to see a single one of you leave the church because of an offense that's not been dealt with biblically. I don't want to see any one of you trip and stumble and have Satan disqualify you from the race. I don't want to see that happen. So we're wrestling for you in prayer so that you stand firm. Don't backslide. Don't lose ground. Stand firm in all of the will of God. Dearest friends, the only thing that matters today is the will of God for you in any given situation. Ask, God, what is your will for me? Do I do this? I'm at a Y in the road regarding my job situation. Do I go left or do I go right? Lord, I'm inquiring of you. Agonize in prayer about those decisions, and God will guide you. I promise you that. He wants to bless you, but we got to do this thing God's way. What is your will the will of God, the will of God, that's the only thing that matters anymore in life. What is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God? That you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Fully assured of what? Write this down. Number one, I'm assured God loves me. Are you assured of that? Well, I don't feel, I didn't use the word feelings. Do you know According to Scripture, God loves you. Yes, I'm absolutely convinced of that because he says it only 158,000 times. 
Even I can get it after that many times. God loves me. That's rule number one. I'm assured of that. Number two, God is in control. You're not. And you are not a pawn of Satan to be pushed around and taken advantage of. God is guiding and directing everything that happens in your life. He means to use it for your good and his glory. He is sovereign. God loves you. He's in control of what? Everything. He's got this. So why are you worrying about it? Why are you shedding tears about it? Why are you agonizing about it? It's not your problem. It is if you haven't given it to God. If I'm assured that God loves me, if I'm assured that God is in control, then there is a third corollary that has to come out of it. It's a necessary corollary. Then everything is going to turn out just fine in the long run if I just keep my eyes on Him. The only three things you need to navigate the rest of your natural life. Three things. Three things, that's all. If you wrote them down and you visit those once a day for the next week, you're going to stand so firm on the promises of God, your joy will overflow, your situations will be moving as God directs the events of your life, or you can continue in the same hot mess that you got. It's up to you. You love hot messes. You like being an emotional wreck. You like not having any answers. You like a home in turmoil. You like a lack of peace. I hate all of those things worse than I hate mowing the lawn and trimming lilac bushes. I want the will of God, and I want the perfect will of God. So you know what? I'm going to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It pleases God when we do that. I just see my father up there in heaven looking down upon his children. This father's sake going, I love you guys. I'm so proud of you. Every time you pray, I hear you. Every time you knock, I'm going to open a door for you. Every time you seek, you know what? I'm going to make sure you find. All that comes out of Matthew chapter 7 and, and verse 7. Well, Paul continues as he describes Epaphras as a prayer wrestler. In verse 13, he says, I vouch for him that he's working hard for you. And those uh, at Laodicea, there was a home church there as well as at Hierapolis that were very close to Ephesus. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, ooh, only place in Scripture that it tells us specifically that Luke was a doctor. And so you're thinking, ooh, I wonder what kind of doctor, maybe, you know, a, a, a brain surgeon or, or, you know, he was probably making some big coin. He's probably a really wealthy man. No, no, no. Here's how it worked in the first century. If you had a, a bunch of slaves in your house, you took the smartest one, you sent him to medical school, and he came back from medical school so he could be the family physician. That's where family physicians came from. But they would send their smartest slave to medical school, come back, and they weren't paid anything at all. Big change from the first century to this one, huh? Doctors get paid a fair amount today. Luke was a doctor, which means he was a Greek slave and was physician to a household that had purchased him and then sent him to medical school. He would serve Paul well. Because you'll remember in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul said three times, Lord, take this thorn in my flesh away from me. 
We're not exactly sure what the thorn in the flesh was, but because uh, of, of extra scriptural writings and because of the hints that we have in the New Testament, seems like he had a, a, an eye, a debilitating eye disease that left him legally blind and as well as in a lot of pain. Other sources tell us that he contracted malaria in the swamps of Galatia on his first missionary trip that had settled into his eyes and they described him as a short, fat man with a weepy, pussy eye disease. Three times it says in 2 Corinthians 12, he asked the Lord, heal me. And God said, my grace is sufficient. In other words, I'm not going to heal you because it's not his perfect will. It is a lie from the pit of hell to think or believe that all of us can be healed of anything all the time. This health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine that's been afloat for a long time is a lie from the pit of hell, and your last bout with COVID should have proved it to you. Why does God allow things like that in our lives? I won't ask what his purposes are for you, and I don't know. That's between you and him. But sometimes when he doesn't heal us, he'll send us a Luke, a physician, a doctor, a prescription. God can use either one. He's in the miracle business, to be sure. I trust him and ask and pray for miracles. But I also see that he uses right here, verse 14, Luke, the doctor, the physician, so it's okay and it's not a lack of faith to go to the doctor? I know some of you are weird about that. Well, I'm just trusting God while the cancer grows. Maybe if the truth be told, you're just scared of doctors, scared that they might tell you something you didn't want to hear, so you stay away from doctors. And the issue is fear, not faith. Oh, I'm just trusting in God. Sometimes God provides physicians. And we need to heed that just as well as we believe him for miracles. So he says, verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, the home church there, and to Nympha and the church in her house. For 400 years, the church didn't have any buildings. They met wherever they could in each other's homes, in the courts of, of Solomon's temple. Verse 16, after this letter has been read to you, uh, see also that it is read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from, the, from Laodicea. Apparently, Paul had written them a letter that we don't have access to today. I don't know what he said in it. We know what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, and they'd become a lukewarm church. But that was years after this epistle was written, so I don't know what was said in that letter. I guess if God wanted us to know, he'd have preserved it for us. But in other words, this is, what I'm giving you is a circular letter. Share it with the other churches. Then he closes out and says, Tell Archippus, verse 17, See to it that you complete the work that you have received in the Lord. Hmm. Who's Archippus? You are. You are. Complete the work that God has given you. You're here in this reason and time and place and circumstance for God's sovereign will and purposes to be played out through you. I don't know what his calling on your life is, but I know that every man, woman, and child in Christ Jesus has a calling upon their life. Are you fulfilling that calling? See that you complete the work. Maybe you're a prayer warrior. Maybe you're called into the ministry to be a pastor. Maybe a missionary. I, I don't know what God's calling on your life is. There are many spiritual gifts 
but sometimes God will make us so physically dependent upon him because our outward man is perishing. Just like Paul who had this nasty eye disease that left him legally blind, God didn't heal him because God had a greater purpose in his suffering. Have you ever seen your personal suffering in that light? Maybe God is using it. Maybe you thought it was a curse and God means for it to be a blessing. Maybe you've been looking at this from the wrong perspective. Maybe it's the perfect will of God. It was God's perfect will that Paul sit in jail for two years. When he finally gets to Rome at the end of Acts chapter 2, he sits in that jail for another two years. What is that? Well, the perfect will of God, apparently. Oh, that doesn't sound fun. It's not about fun. It's about what is the perfect will of God because time is short. And so he tells all of us archipuses here in the congregation, see to it that you complete the work you've received in the Lord. What are you doing for God today? All of us are missionaries in training or in practice. We're all in the process of becoming better Christians, to be sure. But know this, God loves you. He's in control. Everything's going to turn out fine in the long run. But He's got a call on your life. He's got a call on your life. What are you doing with that? Sitting on it? Oh, I'm scared. I can't do this, can't do that. Don't tell God what he can't do. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Isn't that what your Bible says? I can do all things. No, your Bible says, well, I can do a few things. Maybe I can do a little bit. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So what are you waiting for? Somebody to give you their blessing? Here it is. Dominus Vobisca, meet your biscuits. I don't know what the rest of the, the, the Latin phrase is. I wasn't born Latin. Don't speak Latin. Don't read or write Latin. But I know this. God's blessing is already upon you. Be good stewards of it. Complete the work that God has given you in the Lord. Verse 18, I, Paul, now he's used an, an amanuasis, a secretary, if you will, up to this point in time to write the letter as he has dictated it. And now he finishes out the last paragraph in his own handwriting, which nobody can read. But it authenticates his letter. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Finally, in the next to the last sentence of the entire letter, he said, Remember my chains. He has spent the whole letter talking about the Lord and talking about you, the church. And in the next, the last sentence, he says, oh, by the way, I got a personal prayer request. Would you remember my chains? For Paul, it was all about serving others. It wasn't about him. But for you and I, it tends to be all about me, all about my inconvenience, all about my pain. It's me, 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 me. And Paul says, no, yeah, I, you know, last thinking, I just want to mention this in only three words. Remember my chains. He doesn't even pray that God would release him from his chains. He wants the perfect will of God. He said, would you just, you know, remember the fact that I'm in prison and you're not? And I'm in chains because of sharing the gospel. That's my crime. Remember my chains. Pray for me, in other words. Then he says, grace be with you. Grace be with you. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good, what would they call that, an anagram? God's riches at Christ's expense. All of heaven is yours. All eternity is yours. The wealth of the universe and beyond is yours. And someday we will see it, feel it, taste it, touch it with our own hands. We'll be there. We just have to get from here to there. Be faithful. Be strong. Complete the work that God has given you. You say, oh, I don't know what it is. Are you asking and seeking and knocking? Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. He'll make it plain to you. How do I know that? I've got his word on it. I've got his word on that. I trust God's word. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. So dads, whatever you do today, do to your father's glory. Be thankful. Be watchful. Set the spiritual tone in your home. Don't tell others to be spiritual when you're not. That's called hypocrisy. Don't do that. Set the example like Paul did for us. Every one of us. I want to be like Paul. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was called by God. He did unimaginable things. Imagine taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the known world with no car, no horse, no donkey, no telecommunications, no cell phones, no computers. One man did that. What could God do with you? I think the world has yet to see what God can do with one man or woman fully and completely devoted to him. The world has yet to see that. You can be that person. It's really up to you. It's up to you. But know this, God loves you. He's in control. <sighs> Everything's going to turn out just fine if we just keep our eyes on Him. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? Yeah, I, I, Kathy's just asked me, uh, let's, open up the, uh, let's open up the altar to any of you who need to do some asking and seeking and knocking. For some of you, it's health issues. For others, it's economic issues or uncertainty as to who you are or what God's doing with you or where you're going. But I, I'd like to alter, lift up the, the altar to you. And we'll be glad to, as the elders of the church, anoint you with oil. If you don't mind, I'd like to start with my... My son, uh, Luke, uh, he was born with hydrocephalus that crushed one entire hemisphere of his brain. You think you've got a handicap? He has literally half a brain. And he functions very normally for that by the grace of God. We give God glory, honor, and praise for that. <coughs> but he has grand mal seizures and petty mal seizures as a result of that. But there are all of us that can stand a physical touch. And I think because we've gone over that this morning, but asking and seeking and knocking, you want it? Come on down front. For those of you that don't have such a need, would you just feel free to pray where you're at, extend a hand, and reach out to those as brothers and sisters that do have that need, that have that problem.